Welcome to Invention, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Invention. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we wanted to have a little discussion about how certain types of weapons going way back into history, and especially projectile weapons, changed the human animal. That's right. But I mean, put yourself as much as is possible in the mindset of our prehistoric ancestors. You know, we're, you know they, they, were, they were scroungers, you know, leveraging a large primate brain to forage sustenance from roots and berries, uh, you know, from, from the meat they'd learned to catch, scavenge, or steal from larger predators. And key to all of this is distance. I think it's easy to take this for granted, and especially those of us who are removed from any kind of hunting tradition. Well, I've got a story about this, actually. Yeah? Uh, for the first time in my life the other day, somehow I got within like 20 feet of a deer. Oh. I was just out walking my dog uh, along a forest path here in town, at, you know, a park here in town. Um and uh, the, I was completely blind to it. Suddenly, the dog's attention goes, you know, rigid. His whole <laughs> body is just full of electric tension, and his ears are up, and he's frozen. And I'm like, what's going on? And then the deer bolts. And the deer had been, you know, maybe less than 20 feet away from my body, and I'd been just blind to it. It completely blended in with the leaves and the trees and all that. But what it actually made me realize is – I never get that close to a deer. Normally at long distances away, they hear you moving and they bolt. You don't get anywhere that close to them. Yeah. And I mean, certainly there are places where you can you can go where the wildlife has been desensitized to human presence, such as, say, you go to Yosemite National Park. Right. You know, or, or, uh, or you go to uh, the Grand Canyon and you're in some of those high tourist areas right. where the animals are not in danger and therefore you can get alarmingly close to, say, an enormous elk. Or a Grand Canyon squirrel. Oh, yeah, the Grand Canyon squirrel. Well, I mean, th that highlights the other thing is if people have been illicitly feeding these animals, which in general you shouldn't do. Uh, yes, yeah, yeah, do not uh, feed the bears. But, yeah, so, but I think this, this drives home that, like, uh, during this time, uh, you know, there, there are all these animals at large in the world, but how many can you get close to? How many can you get close to enough uh, to potentially kill in order to acquire their protein? Um, it's going to, you know, depend, uh, you know, situationally. Uh, it's going to depend, uh, you know, is this a, an injured animal? Is this an animal mm -hmm. that was killed by another predator? Uh, but a lot of it is going to come down to, like, human skill. Uh, can, you, can you stalk this creature? Can you be stealthy enough to close the distance between yourself and the protein? Yeah, and there are some theories about, like, the, the ability of endurance running in humans. That oh, yeah. Maybe endurance running, uh, our ability at marathoning and stuff is – to compensate for the fact that at short distances, almost all prey animals can outrun us, but that with a lot of them, we can run for longer than they can. And after they tire out and can't go anymore, we can finally catch up with them. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like the Terminator approach. Right. Uh, but this is, yeah, this is part of our uh, human hunting heritage is that this was one way where we're like, well, I can't, I can't out-battle the animal. I can't outrun it. But I can be persistent. Mm -hmm. I, can f I can fix my mind on it, and I can just never stop until it wears out. But even then, if you get in close range with even a lot of prey animals, I mean, not to speak of predators who might be preying on us, mm -hmm. but say uh, like a, a large bovid-type animal, a, you know, a bison or a, uh, or a large stag or a moose, you get close to one of those things, and it can hurt you. Oh, yeah. It, I mean, you're talking about either being gored by the, the pointy end or, or kicked uh, by the other end. 
hand, and yeah. these can these can be fatal blows or, or gores in either case. Uh, and then, yeah, the predators as well. Like these are animals that are far more adept at closing the distance between their hunger and the shape of, you know, a lowly primate, for example. Uh, a primate that, you know, for all its tricks of stone and stick and fire is still helpless against um, an, an adversary or even, a, a, a you know, like you said, a large prey animal if there is no distance left. Yeah, and if no technological advantage. Exactly. And we're talking about a time here when there were no bows and arrows yet. So we had we had rocks that could be thrown, and uh, and this being one of, uh, of of the rocks' many specialized uh, roles that we created for it, uh -huh. um, you know, and because we had pretty dexterous hands, right, uh, and, and we're pretty good at throwing things, but there's only so much you can do with a rock, and then of course there's the spear. The spear, um, the spear is kind of a game changer, right? Yeah, I mean, the spear is a—it's a tree that we've made into a horn, right, mm -hmm. or into an antler or a great tooth. Um, and uh, the the thing is, when we're looking back at uh, at, at prehistoric uh, humans and even their uh, their predecessors, you know, th th these were things that were already in use. The spear had, had been in use uh, by these creatures and those that came before them for hundreds of thousands of years. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it, we should also, I think, make a distinction between the the thrusting spear, which is used for stabbing, and the throwing spear. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it, either way, we're talking about an incredible piece of technology because yeah. it enables them to hunt prey and defend against predators that their ancestors could have rarely engaged. Uh, and, uh, you know, there were there, there were limits either way. So if you're using it as a thrusting tool, uh, you know, it's, it's still pretty impressive, right? Because you're mm -hmm. talking about, say, a six to seven foot spear. Uh, but then you still have the big distance problem about getting close to a prey animal that might be dangerous or just impossible because it's outrunning you. Right. Yeah. And so six to seven feet, you can, you know, thrusting it, you're adding to the length of that spear essentially. But uh, unless you are just super lucky mm -hmm. or just or skillful beyond words, that one spear is probably not going to be enough to do it. Or you're going to miss, or you're going to hit the wrong spot. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you're going to have to depend on all these other uh, bits of primate trickery uh, at your disposal. You're going to have to depend on the stealth, numbers, some sort of strategy, uh, you know, multiple spear thrusters. And even then, you're awfully close to a dangerous animal. Mm -hmm. And even when you're getting into thrown spears, you know, essentially a javelin, mm -hmm. even then, you're, there are limits to, uh, to the range. And you're still going to be faced with a similar situation. You still have to get – you have to close the distance enough to utilize the weapon and then you need to be able to close the deal uh, without the creature fleeing, uh, again, leaving you in the dust and perhaps being picked off by some other predator that's more skillful than you that can take advantage of the wounded. Yeah, that's all right. But it, even given all of these uh, limitations, we shouldn't underestimate the power of the spear. It sort of changed what kind of predator we are. Thinking about before projectile weapons, you are you are so limited just uh, just by reach. And the the spear that that is thrown is a kind of revolutionary update of the body schema. You know, yeah. it's it's like a you know it's a tooth that leaves the body. Yeah, which is you know sort of the you know, you, you see that kind of. Uh, uh, advancement sometimes in the uh, in the in the biological world, mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, for the mo for certainly for a primate, this is a, a new skill altogether. Uh, and it's a, but it's a pretty it's a pretty old invention. Um, the spear itself, when we try to date it, well, the the remains of wooden spears have been found in Hanover, Germany, that date back to four hundred thousand years ago, and we're mm -hmm. talking uh, between six and seven point five foot javelins here. 
so the idea is that they would have been uh, thrown weapons. Uh, the technology um, is even older, though the weapons don't always survive. Um, for instance, a fossilized rhinoceros shoulder blade um, uh, was found in Boxgrove, England, and it had a projectile wound in it, and that's been dated to about 500,000 years ago. And this, incidentally, this wouldn't have been the work of... Um, of, of modern uh, Homo sapiens. This would have been the work of uh, Homo heidelbergensis, which mm. was a, an immediate predecessor to Homo sapiens. Uh-huh. And uh, in terms of, uh, of, of how these spears were composed, stone-pointed spears date back at least 300,000 years to Neanderthals and Archaic Homo sapiens, uh, but 500,000-year-old deposits at uh, Kathupan in South Africa have presented evidence of their use among Homo heidelbergensis. So again, if the, the, the spear is ultimately more ancient than even our species. Now, the idea of a weapon that you can throw, especially like a spear that you can throw, that's sort of an upgrade on just throwing a rock or mm -hmm. even throwing like a biface, so, you know, like the, the hand axes that we've talked about um, that you might have been able to create a sharp edge on. And we don't know exactly what those were always for. We don't know that they were necessarily thrown weapons. Right. Um, but, but throwing a spear is definitely an upgrade. I mean, that, that adds a new dimension of lethality to, to the reach of your body in a hunting or a fighting context. But you're still somewhat limited in range there because have you ever tried to throw a seven-foot spear? How far can you throw it? <laughs> I mean, I've thrown a broom before, but it's hardly the same thing. Uh-huh. <laughs> Well, I mean, you probably know intuitively that you're not going to achieve the same kind of range uh, and speed of throw with a with a hand-thrown spear that you can with, say, a bow and arrow, right? right. You can go a lot farther and shoot a lot faster uh, with, with an arrow and, and a tension bow than you can just trying to hurl a rod out of your hand. Right, and we'll get into some of the comparative ranges as we uh, proceed here. But uh, in, in terms of just looking at a thrown spear— uh, you have to take into account the math of range and accuracy, right? Um, but consider the modern Olympic record for javelin throwing, which we might consider as sort of the peak of distant spear throwing technology because we're talking about utilizing, in many cases, you know, modern designs, modern materials. And also, this is generally a situation where one is is not trying to take down a living animal. Mm -hmm. uh, you're You're just throwing for distance sake. Yeah. But uh, the, the, the record uh, that I ran across was 104.80 meters or 343 feet, nine and three-fourths inches. And this was a record set, uh, an Olympic record set by East Germany's Yui Hahn in 1984. And this was actually a throw that forced a redesign in, a, in Olympic javelins to keep them within the safe confines of the field. Uh-huh. Um, as such, he's the only Olympic javelin thrower to break the 100-meter barrier. But as we're saying, this uh, this is something that is a modern situation brought about by the fact of modern design and materials of this javelin uh, and the fact that he's purely going for distance. Right. This is not uh, an attempt to hit something and wound it with accuracy. Right. Yeah, there's a difference between, say, hitting the broadside of a barn and then hitting the broadside of, say, a mammoth. Yeah. <laughs> and, and again, with the mind of not only hitting it and saying, hey – Look how great I am at throwing a javelin. No, you're, you're not great at throwing a javelin in the prehistoric context unless you and those working with you can bring the animal down because ultimately it's all about survival. But again, the spear was a game changer and it was around for a long time. I mean, we're, we're not even really going to get into military usage all that much in this episode, but 
um, you know, we should note that the spear would remain would become and remain a standard in military conflict for thousands of years, especially when used in a phalanx, you know, a close formation of troops that all have spears. Uh, but then again, you're not going to be able to use that really to, to you know, go bring down a, a stag. Not really. You don't really think about that being a hunting tactic. Right. Uh, your phalanx doesn't really keep up with the stag. Right. But again, the spear was a major technology. It was a game changer, and it remained in use for a very long time. But at some point, a new range weapon uh, came on the scene, and that was, of course, the bow and arrow. Right. And you might think, okay, well, there's just like the next step, right? You go from throwing a spear with your hand to the bow and arrow, and there's nothing in between, right? <laughs> uh, and, and that is not true. That's the, <laughs> that is the whole uh, reason we're doing this episode is to talk about uh, the, the technology that comes between these advancements. That's right. We are talking about a projectile delivery system, one of the one of the most beautiful early machines that humans put together that is commonly today known as the autolotl. All right. On that note, we're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, we are going to uh, discuss the spear throwing technology. All right, we're back. So it's time to talk about upgrading the spear by upgrading the delivery mechanism of the spear. And this is before you get to the bow and arrow. This is after the hand-thrown spear, before the bow and arrow. There's this weapon that comes along in human techno history. Uh, And it's not nearly as well known as the bow, obviously, but it is nevertheless one of the most world-changing and longest-used technologies in human history. And this weapon is the autolotl. So the word autolotl is spelled A-T. ATL. It comes from the Nwadal language of the Aztec, but it's uh, it's just that's just one regional variant of the name. More generally, this technology is sometimes known as the spear thrower or the dart thrower. Though, don't let uh, the word dart give you the wrong idea there. When I first read dart thrower, I was thinking, okay, like a game of darts, so something that's like four inches long and you yeah. hold in your hand. No, th- this is going to be referring to a, a huge projectile. Yeah, we're talking a, something that we, you would look at and classify as a very large arrow or a or a or even a, just a spear you know, or like a, a javelin. Like a spear with fletching sort of. Yes. So there are other words in other languages for the same tool. Uh, apparently in Spanish, it's known as the estolica. And uh, in French, it's the propulsure. <laughs> <laughs> the English transliterations, I think, of the, the common Australian terms for it are, are uh, woomera or miru. Uh, I was reading that there's a version used by some of the Yupik people of Alaska, mostly for hunting seals, reportedly even to the present day by some, that's called the nukok or the throwing board. Uh, and this being the idea that it's it's essentially in this case a, I mean it's kind of board shaped. Yeah, not the dart itself, but the throwing right. device, the mm-hmm. the the equivalent of the autolotl, which we're going to be focusing on today. So, what is this thing? If you've never seen one in action, well. In some ways, it looks so simple. It's deceptively simple. It's simple in a way that hides the genius of this invention. And I would argue that it's one of our earliest biological augmentations, ways of sort of upgrading the human body almost in a kind of video game sense, like sort of the first steps towards cyborgdom. Uh, one example, of course, of this type of bio-augmentation would be something like wearing animal skins as clothes. You know, this turns our relatively climate-sensitive bodies into technological hybrids, like as if we had fur and extra layers of skin to help us keep warm and protect us from the weather. And the autolotl is like this, except instead of upgrading our epidermis, it's a a similar type of upgrade for the spear-throwing human arm. 
Yeah, I mean, like any tool use upgrades the body schema. Like it updates the way that your brain is processing the limits of your body and how you use your body. Mm. So you know, if you use a, you have a sharpened uh, stick in your hand. Uh, you have a sword in your hand. Well, the, your that is an extension of your arm. Yeah, it's um, in- increased like the lethality and the reach of your hand. Right, and that in a nutshell is what's going on here: is increasing the length of the throwing arm. Uh, one bit of technology that uh, that it's I think it's sort of comparable to is the uh, the tennis ball thrower that uh, dog enthusiasts uh, and dog owners sometimes ha- have. Yes, if you've ever seen one of these things, uh, that it, I think it's mostly actually just for keeping the slobber off of oh, your yeah, hand because it helps you pick it up too. Yeah, right? yeah. so it's like a little scoop uh, that you know if your your dog brings the tennis ball back to you, it's covered in in drool, and you pick it up in this scoop, and then you whip the scoop out overhand and throw the ball, and it also helps you get distance on the oh, throw. Oh yeah. Because I don't have one that's for dogs, but I have one um, that that is for for children. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Similar concept, I guess. So wear the child out by throwing it farther, so they well, have right. To... But it's like a whistle ball, like one of these like Nerf uh, whistle ball things. And okay. yeah, I was. Uh, it's real super fun because you can just really hurl this thing like 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 crazy, like far you know far uh, greater distance than you could by just trying to throw it like a, a mini football. But how does that happen? Your arm didn't get any stronger. You're just as strong as you were when you were throwing at those puny distances with your hand. Yeah. Uh, so the same principle is at play in the otolotl. So it, the invention has two primary parts. One is the dart, which we were talking about a minute ago. It looks sort of like a huge arrow. It's going to be usually a wooden shaft with a sharpened point at its tip, either like a stone spearhead or just a sharpened wooden tip, uh, in, in anything sharp and puncturing. And then on the back, it's going to have fletching. So think these feather fins that you would see on the back of an arrow. And those are for aerodynamic stabilization. They help it fly straight. If you've never seen a dart like this, basically just picture something that is like an arrow but spear-sized, maybe six feet or about 1.8 meters long on average, though they can be a good bit longer or shorter. The average is about six or seven feet. Uh, Then you've got the launching device, the otolotl itself, which is a baton that is used to throw the dart. And this is usually going to be in the range of about one and a half to two feet long or about 50 to 60 centimeters roughly. Though then again, you know, like the dart, this can be a good bit longer or shorter. Uh, So so picture something kind of like a two-foot baton. It's got a grip handle on one end. And on the other end, some type of component that couples with the back end of the dart. And this can be a cup-shaped depression that the back of the dart sits in, or it can be kind of a simple hook that the back of the dart catches Mm -hmm. in. Or sometimes it's actually uh, inverted where the the back of the atolotl has a spur that locks into a groove or depression on the rear end of the dart. Does that make sense? Yeah, we'll try and have uh, at least one image of this on the landing page for this episode at inventionpod.com. But also this is the kind of technology that uh, a lot of you have probably had the privilege of seeing in either in a museum Mm -hmm. uh, when when it's available or at least a recreation of it or various YouTube videos where people have recreated them. Yeah, you can look up all kinds of – there are tons of otolotl enthusiasts out there today. In addition to the people who actually do still actively hunt with it, there are a lot of people who just kind of play with them recreationally. Right. And the otolotl itself, taking into account both modern and ancient um, variations, 
it can often look just very utilitarian, like like clearly a stick you know, that you know is is for uh, you know for for launching a, a spear, mm-hmm. you know, not not a lot more than that. But you also see some rather ornate looking ones that really look like a scepter. You can sort of tell that they have some sort of a functionality, like they're like clearly there's some sort of purpose for its shape. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, there's some some wonderful examples of this for that you know date back say seventeen thousand to thirteen thousand years ago. Uh, from uh, modern day France, and uh, like the example I was looking at, it uh, it looks like a, a deer perched atop a stick, and there are these added birds as well. And in some of these cases, these may be th- these may be non functional versions of the atolotl. This was what it would have been, say, uh, the the, the that you would put on the wall, right? Uh, the, sa- the same way that there are like. Swords have a real function and they were made for a real functional reason, but there are plenty of just decorative swords that right. exist. You know, the, the fancy one that you hang up over the mantle. Or the hand axe is another example of this. There, like, there are yeah. some examples of the hand axe that, that may have been, hard to say in, in many cases, but may have been purely decorative. Yeah. But that gets into this weird relationship we have with our technology, right? We, When technology plays an important role in our lives, it can be fetishized. It can be it can be revered. It can be even attributed with magical properties, uh, and to the point that it may not actually be physically used for the thing that it was made to do anymore. Yeah, such as like every sword sold at a Ren festival is an example of this. There are tons of ways in which. Uh, tools and objects used to do work become symbolic. And because they become symbolic, I mean, they're they're hugely evocative things. Think of the hammer and sickle symbolizing like work and plenty and, you know, Mm -hmm. all that. Or the sword and shield on medieval heraldry or whatever that's just like showing strength and power. And, you know, so so the, the tools themselves become incredibly powerful symbols. Yeah, you're exactly right. But let's say it's not just for decoration. You actually want to use it. Mm-hmm. So you're out hunting. You're in a warfare scenario. You're in a hunting scenario. And so to use the atolotl, what you do is you hold the dart parallel to the launching baton, to the atolotl. So they're, they're sitting basically side by side, flat against each other. And you're going to hold them horizontal uh, with the back end of the dart knocked into the cup or the hook or the spur, whatever it is that connects with the back of the dart with the dart pointing forward. So you're going to be holding it up over your shoulder, pointing forward towards your target. And when you've aimed at your target, you sort of whip the atolotl forward with the handle end, which brings its length from its horizontal starting place through a vertical arc. And uh, then the back end of the dart, of course, is pushed as it pivots on the spur or the cup or the hook before the dart is loosed at the top of the arc and then flies free toward its target. So you can think of the motion a little bit, not exactly the same, but a little bit sort of like an overhand tennis stroke, right? Yeah. You're like bringing the the launching device forward to launch the projectile with the thing that extends out from your hand. Yeah, or if you think another way is if you think of it of the of just an over, like a you know this overhand throw of a spear, mm-hmm. it's like you have mechanically recreated the arm and the spear again. Yeah, it's kind of a mechanical projectile hurling arm brandished uh, by a human arm. Right. Or more specifically, though, it is a lever that extends the length of the spear thrower's arm for greater momentum. Right. It makes your arm longer and it gives you another joint in your arm. Yeah. So instead of just shoulder, elbow, and wrist to pivot and whip along to deliver that that momentum, you essentially get a second forearm. 
And so, so why is this better than just throwing a spear with your hand? Well, the primary advantage of – and we can discuss some other possible advantages as well. But the primary advantage of the atlatl over the hand-thrown spear is that it flies a good deal faster, which increases the range of flight and the force of the impact and the depth of penetration when it hits its target. Yeah, so let's let's talk some numbers again. So consider earlier we we're talking about a, a modern javelin throwing record of what a hundred and four point eighty meters or three hundred and forty three feet in nine and three fourths inches. Now again, with all the caveats, right? That's right. like a modern javelin, and like, yeah. and you're not aiming at an accuracy target. You're just throwing as far as you can. Exactly. Now springboarding off of that, looking at modern modern atlatl uh, distance records, uh, there's one in 1995 set by Dave uh, Ingvall. And he used a, a very modern uh, take on the weapon, a carbon fiber uh, autolotl and an aluminum dart. And he hurled it 258.64 meters or 848.56 feet. Um, an, another record that our um, researcher Scott brought up was uh, using a wooden autolotl. The record is 230.48 meters or 756 feet. And this was set by... Ilka Kantanaho from Finland using a, a, a like a birch autolotl uh, and a, a, a wooden dart. But in either case, though, I think it's pretty safe to say that we're talking about a technology that effectively doubles the throwing range from right. going from a hand-thrown spear to an autolotl-thrown spear. Yeah, and so that automatically tells you something if just you're going for distance and you can go more than twice as far as you can uh, hand-throwing it. Now, the hunting scenario is going to be somewhat different than the javelin-throwing scenario where you're just going for distance because the hunting scenario accuracy becomes important. And right. also other qualities that we might not think about as much, just like power and accuracy, also stealth becomes important in most hunting scenarios. Yeah. However, when you take into account um, – uh, you know, the hunting scenario, um, for instance, uh, Brian M. Fagan in 70 Great Inventions of the Ancient World, uh, a book that I've referenced before on the show, he writes that the autolotl improves range by as much uh, as fourfold. Um, again, stressing that, uh, you know, accuracy would come with practice. Yeah. Uh, the, that's essential in all of this. It's not a, uh, like, like any piece of, uh, you know, of ancient technology, like a great deal of skill needed to be involved. You couldn't go from just you know, being an experienced spear thrower to picking up an autolotl and getting it automatically. Uh, this would, this changed the way that you, you utilize the weapon. Yeah. Uh, now, I want to talk about some characteristics of the use of the weapon, like weighing some of these pros and cons about its mechanics. Uh, one thing I was reading was a report about a 2003 physics paper by Richard A. Ball, which was uh, called The Dynamics of Spear Throwing in the American Journal of Physics. And in this case, he uh, used high-speed video to analyze the characteristics of autolotl throws and create a computer model of autolotl launching scenarios. And uh, so among the things he found was that the, the lever action of the autolotl allows regular throws to achieve speeds of more than 100 kilometers per hour. And I wonder about this if this is a conservative or low-end estimate because – Elsewhere, I've seen it claimed pretty regularly but without citation <laughs> that the autolotl allows throws more in the range of 100 miles per hour, which is more like 160 kilometers per hour, which is a good bit faster. Uh, but then again, to bring support back to the lower end of the speed measurements, uh, there was a different study I found, one by Whitaker, Pettigrew, and Grossmeyer in uh, – 
uh, Paleo America in 2017. And what they found was, quote, we measured numerous well-practiced individuals using a variety of autolotl equipment comparing radar gun, film, and chronograph measurements of dart velocity. The autolotls used in hunting and warfare probably did not accelerate darts much beyond 35 meters per second or 78 miles per hour. So that that's uh, honing back in on somewhere close to the, you know, 100 kilometers per hour or a little bit more. Um, but that's nothing to sniff at. You get hit by a six-foot dart at 78 miles per hour, and that's that's brutal. Yeah, that's still going to pierce the skin. That's still going to pierce the hide. That's still going to, you know, work towards getting you where you want to go and bringing down a large animal. Yeah, and uh, to the point, uh, more to the point of what you were talking about with those pure distance measurements, Baugh found you could achieve distances of more than 200 meters easily. Uh, the, the distance will probably be a lot shorter, again, if you're going for hunting accuracy. Now, here's something interesting that is sort of an archaeological mystery that's been going on for a while. There are some otolotls that have been found that have a weight in the middle of the shaft called a banner stone. And archaeologists have debated what the purpose of this stone was. Some people thought it was decorative. Some thought it actually provided a benefit to the throw. Maybe that by increasing the weight of the otolotl, it would allow you to throw harder. But uh, Baugh found with his model that increasing the weight of the otolotl did not have much effect on the speed of the dart. What did have an effect on the speed of the dart was the otolotl's flexibility. Uh, if the shaft is flexible, it, it can increase the speed of the throw by up to 15 percent. This sort of makes sense to me, almost like adding a bit of the bow flex propulsion into the throw. So this is probably a good place to mention that archaeolo the archaeological challenges of understanding the uh, the uh, the otolotl. Mm -hmm. uh, you know what remains of the ancient past do we have to to, to look at? You know we, we we end up looking at things like stone weapon tips, mm -hmm. which uh, which generally preserve very well. Uh, mysterious stones uh, such as the the banner stone. You know the, they're they're going to uh, stand the test of time. And when we're, but when we're lucky, uh, we find wooden remains that say, give us an idea of how long archaic humans have been crafting spears. But it, it's really easy to lose track of, of simple tools, uh, and especially when they're made out of, out of wood that just simply doesn't last. And it's a challenge then to figure, try and figure out how they played into ancient traditions. Uh, you know, all of this is enhanced with the autolotl because it's a, it's a complex mechanical tool. And for much of the world, it was abandoned prior to recorded history. So in many of these cases, there are no traditions of the weapon passed on. Yeah, uh, we talked about this in our episode with Dietrich Stout where we mm -hmm. were looking at Stone Age technology, uh, specifically a, a lot of stuff about like uh, stone napping and the bifaces and all that where, you know, he just pointed out <laughs> – it's not always easy to tell what an ancient tool was used for. You can often find a stone that appears to have been modified in some way, but what was it for? I don't know. Then you have to you have to start making a lot of inferences. Mm -hmm. Even worse the case when you've got wooden tools that don't necessarily last as long as stone tools do. And right. so it might be in some degraded form. Uh, but just as a side note, you, you mentioned the idea that um, for much of the world, the otolotl was abandoned prior to recorded history. And that is true in many cultures. Uh, but while the spear thrower was often abandoned by cultures after they acquired the bow and arrow, it wasn't always. There were some cultures, uh, for instance, I've read about the, the examples of uh, some cultures in, in Mesoamerica and in the Arctic who held on to the spear thrower and even preferred it for some specialized uses after the bow was introduced. So it might be interesting to look at what some of those reasons for holding on to the otolotl as a, a weapons propulsion technology after the introduction of the bow might be. 
So I, I was inspired by this question, and, and I was looking around, uh, particularly as it regards the, the Aztec people. Mm-hmm. And uh, basically, uh, Mesoamerican peoples were using uh, the atolotl, uh, but then the bow was introduced by various northern tribes that invaded Mexico from the north in the 12th and 13th century CE. Mm-hmm. Uh, several different tribal groups that were referred to um, by some of the, the Mesoamerican peoples as being barbarians, mm-hmm. which I guess is you know often the case, right? Those that invade you from outside are considered the barbarians. Right. Even in this case, when they are bringing with them a more advanced ranged weapon. Right, because of the tension stored in the bow, but not necessarily better for every single case. That's right. So uh, I was looking uh, at a blog, uh, The Aztec Vault by William Anderson, which is, which is really good. I, I recommend it. Uh, and he was uh, and he was referring to the work of anthropologist Ross Hassig, and uh, pointed out that um, that even that even uh, you know in the in the wake of the bow, uh, the the Aztec people then uh, you know are, are rising up in power, and they have they have taken the bow uh, into their their military usage, but uh, Aztec nobility still considered the bow a barbaric weapon and uh, unbecoming of their use. But because it was believed to be introduced by peoples who were perceived as enemies? Yeah, and then also just, you know, the autolotl was, was, on the other hand, a revered weapon of the Aztec people. And so the nobility mm-hmm. didn't want anything to do with the bow. The commoners, they would be the ones to utilize the bow and arrow in their military campaigns. Hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, so they were, they were all about embracing the use of the bow and arrow, but personally, they were never going to use them. They were going to use the autolotl. So, yeah, the, the elite class would use the autolotl and commoners would use the large bows as well as slings in combat. Anderson writes, quote, Hasig argues that the autolotl was likely used during the initial charge at the very beginning of an engagement. It had less range than the bow, but had far more power behind the projectile and was therefore more likely to penetrate armor or a shield. During the charge, warriors likely threw a salvo of four or five darts that they carried loosely in their hand before they dropped the autolotl and switched to a melee weapon. Hmm. And by the way, I believe the, the melee weapon in question would have been the obsidian-edged uh, Makwahitl wooden sword club. Mm-hmm. Uh, hopefully everyone's seen an image of one of these, but it is a, a just a terrific-looking um, kind of a hybrid of sword and club. You know, uh-huh. it's, it's, it's wooden. It kind of looks like some sort of a, like an ancient chainsaw. It's a brutal-looking <laughs> weapon. Uh, uh, so, yeah, ima- I'm just imagining the, you know, the elite soldier class of the Aztecs rushing into battle, uh, using the autolotl to hurl these, these po- high-powered spears into the front ranks and then dropping the autolotl uh, all together and whipping out this sword. Uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's a pr- pretty terrifying scenario. But to be clear, that is the scholar Hasig's interpretation right, of what yeah. he thinks probably happened. Yeah, there's a lot. And Hasig has, has written extensively on Aztec uh, military and, you know, what they're tactics seem to have been, but uh-huh. with all things uh, regarding, um, uh, you know, pre-contact Mesoamerica, uh, you know, there's a lot we don't know and there's a lot that we have to infer. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it seems like the, the continued use of the autolotl uh, among the Aztec people is a combination of sticking with the weapon out of cultural tradition uh, and, and with, we should say, seemingly fewer centuries to abandon it outright, you know, like the culture still had some charge left in it, right? Uh, but also figuring out, you know, it was a matter of figuring out how to best utilize it in the evolving face of battle alongside newer weapons, like defining what an autolotl can do 
that slings and bows and arrows cannot achieve. Yeah. Uh, now, I have seen it cited other other reasons uh, mm-hmm. beyond just like cultural attachment that people might have for preserving the use of the atolotl even after the introduction of the bow. Uh, like I was reading some reasons that have been cited by the World Atolotl Association who point out, for example, you can use the atolotl with one hand. Well, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, and if you're charging again, charging across the battlefield, like that, that makes sense, right? You have the, you have your, your darts in one hand, the auto auto on the other, mm-hmm. and, uh, and that's all you need. Right. So you got that. Another thing is that it could propel very heavy projectiles delivering more momentum. Uh, you know, you're comparing like this dart that's more like a spear on the auto auto versus the typically smaller arrows you would shoot with a bow. And of course, if you get with a hit with a heavier projectile, it's going to hurt you more. And in the case of the Aztecs, it's worth pointing out that, like, the, their adversaries would have had armor. They were not unarmored people. It was, mm-hmm. uh, like, fiber-based, but it was still protection against uh, uh, these various weapons that were employed. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, and then another interesting reason they cite is that it is easier, apparently, on an atolotl to attach a line to the dart for, like, uh, reeling back a harpoon, say. So if you're out uh, trying to harpoon seals or something like that, mm-hmm. it uh, might be easier to use an atolotl than a bow, in which case the uh, the line could maybe get in the way of shooting. I'm, I'm assuming that's the reason. And it also might have something to do with the, uh, like the weight of the line, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, and so one one more thing that I think is interesting is the question of how accurate you can be with an atolotl. Because on one hand, it it seems intuitive to me that an atolotl would be hard to use, like it would be hard to get it to aim right. It seems kind of unwieldy. But when you watch practice throwers with it, they look deadly accurate. Um, In fact, I was just reading about – I was just reading an anecdotal report of this one guy who was – you know, this is not somebody who's been using an autolotl his whole life. This is just a guy who who picked it up and started hunting with it in – in Florida. This was reported in 2018 by the Mississippi Clarion Ledger after he had killed an alligator with an autolotl. Apparently, (laughs) this is like a really interesting story. But one part that stuck out to me was that the the guy who did it, his name was Ryan Gill, he said he was shocked how accurate the weapon was once he tried it, reporting that he found he could pretty easily hit soda cans at 10 yards or about 9.1 meters. Mm. Soda cans, I mean, that. I don't know if I could hit those with a bow and arrow. I don't. I, I don't know if I could hit one with a rock or a basketball. <laughs> I mean, it depends. Um, and and uh, a lot of the evidence I found for this uh, idea that you could actually be very accurate with the autolotl, uh, like this story, was just sort of anecdotal reports. But there is apparently some empirical research on accuracy, uh, on the accuracy of autolotl compared to, say, uh, the bow. Uh, this one's summarized by Whitaker et al. from that 2017 paper I mentioned earlier. Quote, accuracy is more easily achieved with a bow, although a skilled atolotlist can compete with an archer at short ranges. So it seems like in general a bow is more accurate, but if you practice enough, you can get about as accurate with an autolotl at short range. Uh, they're just – appears to be maybe a stronger learning curve with the autolotl. Mm. So to go back to the Aztec scenario, like, again, this seems like the perfect usage for it because those those elite soldiers rushing in, they have to close that distance anyway. Mm-hmm. They have to they, – they're having to, to traverse that area uh, where the autolotl could be used. Uh, and again, it's a one-handed weapon. So that's like the, the perfect domain for its use. But also pointing out that 
you know, this could also have been, you know, also there's perhaps a shock element to it as well. Mm-hmm. You know, it's maybe it's kind of a terror weapon. This is the weapon of the Aztec elite. Yeah, I can just picture it in my mind. I mean, there is something fearsome about the way that they're flying off of these batons when you when you hurl it, and mm-hmm. you know, the rotation of the body is you. Do, it's a it, it is a, a a menacing movement, let's say. And I, you know, I didn't look in. I didn't read any research on this, but uh, it also comes to mind that uh, if you want to close the distance with a ranged weapon, um, it, I mean, the the, the more tra- traditional version of this that you see in other cultures is, of course, you have a mounted archer. Mm-hmm. But there's no, you wouldn't have had horses in uh, in Mesoamerica right. pre-contact. Yeah. Uh, so the, you know, the, the Aztecs were not using horses in battle. They were they were all on foot. And so, again, another reason perhaps the Atalatl was, again, like this was the perfect place for its use, the perfect time and place for its continued usage in a military scenario. That's a good point. Now, there are other comparisons between the bow and the Atalatl that uh, I was also reading about in in Whitaker et al. from 2017. So uh, the authors here mention that, first of all, an arrow does travel faster than an Atalatl. So it reaches its target in less time, and it gives the target less time to react and dodge out of the path of the dart or arrow. So that's that's a pretty clear bow advantage. You close the distance faster mm-hmm. and there's less time to react. Um, also, you can fire a bow from all kinds of positions, sitting, crouch, standing, on top of a horse. Yeah. Uh, while it's more difficult to do that with an autolotl, I have seen images, for example, of um, of one of the Yupik uh, seal hunters who's got an autolotl out in a, in a boat and he seems to be in a sitting position. I, I don't know if he would sort of stand up or get up on his knees to hurl it, but he's holding it as if he's ready to throw and he's sitting in the boat. But it is generally true that to get the best kind of leverage on the autolotl throw, you probably want to be standing. Another point of comparison is that shooting a bow requires less movement of the body as a whole, which means it's less likely to alert prey. You're moving less. You're making less sound. Yeah, you can be a lot more stealthy. And again, stealth is going to be is going to be a key factor in any of these hunting scenarios for sure. Though, then again, I will say to come back on the other side, when you watch some of these skilled autolotalists using the weapon, Mm -hmm. one thing that's very striking about it is how quiet it is. There's just kind of this woof of the, the, you know, if you hear the stick at all and the dart just sails silently until it pounds into its target and then that's the first real noise you hear. Oh, wow. But anyway, uh, so the authors mention, quote, these factors could be important for individual hunting of alert prey and in warfare. However, variations in hunting tactics such as hunting in groups and driving prey into approachable positions as well as tactics in warfare could have kept autolotls effective and useful even after the introduction of the bow. So I think on the other end of the spectrum, while bows are faster and more stealthy, autolotls can launch heavier darts and they can be powerful in situations where, say, a prey animal is not aware of you or is cornered or surrounded or something. All right, we're going to take one more break. And when we come back, we're going to discuss the legacy of the autolotl. All right, we're back. So how important was the autolotl in human history? Uh, well, you know, I feel like we've, we've, we've driven home already that we're talking about a, a means of hunting. So it's a means of, of survival, a means mm-hmm. of acquiring necessary sustenance for, for uh, oneself and one's people. 
Um, but uh, in that uh, that book, uh, The 70 Great Inventions of the Ancient World by Brian M. Fagan, uh, he points out that, you know, our oldest examples, uh, you know, known examples of the autolotl take us back to the Ice Age when humans would have uh, used them on wild horses and reindeer. And so the technology, if it improves your odds of landing such prey, this is meat that could prove vital, especially if, if cured in autumn uh, for the long winter months ahead. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you could – I think you could make a case for like yeah, any technological advancement in acquiring protein during this time, uh, you know, could have played you know, an important or even essential role in ensuring the survival of the species. Yeah, I do think uh, hunting of megafauna was yeah. an important part of Pleistocene survival. They've got a lot of meat on them, but they're also very often they're dangerous to get close to mm-hmm. and they're hard to kill and they, they might be tough and they might be, you know, good at getting away from you. Yeah, so the autolotl was important. We already, we already mentioned the, uh, you know, the, the, the various decorations uh, that we see on some of these uh, remaining autolotl and whether these were autolotl that were used, actually used or they're purely decorative. Either way, they show that it was a revered item, that it held an important role uh, in their culture at the time. That clearly does seem to be the case with some of these highly decorated ones. On the other hand, an interesting thing I've seen when uh, when you watch some of these, like, uh, say, wild hunting autolotlists, uh, one thing I've seen at least pointed out by a couple of them is that it's not that hard to make one of these in the field. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can you can not even have to take your weapon with you. You go out into the field and you find the right trees and you can make yourself an autolotl and some darts pretty quickly. Oh, that's cool. This would have made far more sense in the movie Predator. Remember <laughs> where um, Arnold Schwarzenegger's character, uh, what, what was his name? Dutch. Dutch, yeah. Where he uh, he has this scene where he makes, makes a giant bow. Makes, yeah. yeah, makes a high-powered bow and arrow out uh-huh. of just stuff he finds in the jungle, mm-hmm. which – I don't, I don't know. I'm sure somebody has sort of myth-busted this uh, to some extent. But <laughs> it always seemed unlikely. And, and, uh, and, and then in later sort of th- you know, films, uh, you know, lower-budget films that were inspired by this, you often see characters creating even crappier-looking bows and arrows <laughs> out, of, uh, out of the stuff they find in the woods. Whereas, yeah, if, he, if Dutch had made an autolotl and used that to battle the predator, uh, then uh, that would have been awesome. Why, yeah. I wish that had happened. I fully agree. We should uh, petition them to go back and make the movie again, <laughs> fix this problem. Yes. Um, uh, but, you know, by the way, so, so talking about like the bow and arrow coming in and to what extent it replaced the autolotl, um, not, not everyone jumped on the bow and arrow bandwagon. Uh, Fagan uh, also points out that uh, Australian Aborigines never took up the bow and arrow. Uh, they, they stuck with uh, other um, ranged weapon techniques, despite in some cases definitely being uh, in touch with other peoples that used bows and arrows, such as the uh, Torres Strait Islanders. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of Australia, uh, another ranged weapon, I'm going to throw this in because I don't know that we could get a full episode out of it. Maybe we could, but the boomerang. Mm-hmm. Uh, the boomerang is another ranged weapon of note and one with a very incomplete history. Uh, but we know it dates back at least 10,000 years. That's the oldest evidence we found. But as a wooden weapon, you know, very few archaeological examples present themselves. And, uh, and by the way, we, we primarily associate this blunt-ranged weapon uh, with Australia. But other parts of the world have produced artifacts that are at least arguably, possibly boomerangs. Hmm. 
Uh, so yeah, boomerang technology, another uh, ranged weapon that we sometimes forget about. Now, in addition to the cultures that have continued use of the otolotl into the present day for hunting, such as uh, the example of some of the Yupik peoples we mentioned, and I think I've read about some people, uh, some indigenous Australian peoples doing this, uh, there, there are also just tons of people who have taken up use of the otolotl recreationally. It's something mm-hmm. that has I think gotten uh, – I don't know. There, it seems to have been a surge in interest in, in this in the past few decades. Oh, yeah. Again, there are lots of YouTube videos and I definitely recommend anyone who's interested in seeing one of these actions to check out a few. Make sure you check out a few to you know, sort of find the right ones. Uh, but uh, there's also, for instance, the World Autolotl Association. Uh, you can find them at worldautolotl.org. Autolotl, by the way, we, if you're not aware from the title of the episode, if you haven't seen it in print, uh, it is A-T-L-A-T-L. I think I might have said that earlier, but if okay. I didn't, I'm just, sorry. Just in case, we're going to drive that home. So that's worldatlatl.org. And uh, they, highlight, they track events and projects across the United States and parts of Europe. Uh, so we're talking about just uh, you know casual throws, you know, a chance to, to try out an autolotl. Uh, you know, school children, scout groups, et cetera, serious competitions among uh, autolotl enthusiasts, mm-hmm. as well as classes about how to make an autolotl or use it. Um, I, as far as I can tell, however, there's no Atlanta-based organization, which is a shame because that would be what the Atlanta Autolotl Association well, or the something. ATL, yeah. <laughs> yeah the ATL, ATL, ATL. Uh-huh. Uh, but uh, hey, maybe it's out there and I just didn't find it, or maybe maybe you listening out there in the Atlanta area, you will... Uh, You'll you'll start it and uh, invite uh, Joe and I to go check it out. I'm trying to find the outcast joke in here. It's like the, the people who are a member of that organization are the Autolotl AT aliens. <laughs> that could work. That could work. Now we mentioned Dietrich Stout earlier, uh, the, uh, who we interviewed on Stuff to Blow Your Mind, the other podcast about mm-hmm. uh, about uh, about Stone Age technology mm-hmm. uh, and particularly the hand axe. Uh, but one of the areas we got into discussing him was like, what is the connection between um, uh, these tools that we're using and the way we're manipulating them and building them and uh, and the human mind? Oh, yeah. Uh, now, he was talking about some ideas about possible connections between, I think, uh, uh, language modules in the brain and the mm-hmm. ways that we construct stone tools. Uh, there are also just interesting things to think about. I, I was looking at a paper um, – from uh, Frontiers in Psychology in 2018 that's just charting a connection between the development of different types of weapons technology across the human history. You know, a lot of it is like a Stone Age human history and the development of different uh, levels of causal cognition in humans, meaning like, you know, showing that we understand causes and effects beyond our immediate moment and physical body projected across space and time into the future. And it's interesting to think about like the different weapons technologies coming along over time, always just extending farther and farther out in time and space from the body. Hmm. So you've got first like, you know, thrusting spears that extend the reach of the body and then throwing spears that extend it further and then the autolotl which extends it even further but also adds in these abstract elements of sort of inanimate causal understanding like you understand that the lever in your hand will increase the power of the throw even though the spear is no longer in your hand when that happens 
And then, of course, you've got ideas about like stored energy and the tension of a bow. And then even beyond that, ideas that go beyond uh, beyond the, the present moment by, say, using poisoned arrow tips. You know, that's extending the, the causality of the weapon further into time. And basically, the authors here just point out that, you know, th- this further and further and further extension away in time and space from the physical body uh, mirrors the timeline of development of all these technologies. And so I thought that was kind of interesting. Interesting. And then, of course, we also have to think about – it makes me think, too, about how our, our tools end up being metaphors for our understanding of the world – uh, so, like, the the, the, the arrow itself, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, we think about, like, the arrow of time, um, you know, and to, to what extent do these various technologies end up allowing us, giving us the sort of the, the metaphorical fodder to then have these more complex thoughts about how the world works? This is something that comes up a lot on this show about, like, the most fundamental technologies end up becoming so much more than technology. They become the shapes with which we envision abstract elements of our lives. Yeah. You know, like the the wheel becoming so much more than just a transportation technology that it's like one of our most fruitful metaphors in all of language. And arrows are another thing like that, arrows and spears. Think about how much uh, there's this uh, – the, the idea of missing the mark or being on target, you know, yeah. like with an arrow or a spear, you're, you're talking about trying to hit your target at a ranged distance. Uh, I think about how in the theological domain, I believe the word in Greek that's like used uh, for sin in in Christianity, the Greek word is hamartia, which literally means to miss the mark as if like, you know, like your spear does not connect with its target. I know this reminds me of uh, the episode we did about Cupid's uh, arrow for stuff to blow your mind. And, uh, you know, you, you think about what it is to be hit with an arrow or to see one hit with an arrow. It is for this physical attack to come perhaps even out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Like you don't see where it launched from. It's just like the arrow appears lodged in the individual. The wound just happens, uh-huh. uh, which is, you know, probably, you know, seems seems close to the metaphor that's being made for being struck by love. Is that <laughs> like, I don't know where it came from, but now it's here and I'm bleeding. <laughs> The new tagline of this podcast, now it's here and I'm bleeding every time there's a new episode. Well, the, think too uh, about just how attractive the idea of, uh, of, of certainly the bow and arrow, mm-hmm. but then perhaps to some extent the spear, but mostly the bow and arrow, uh, how we keep coming back to that in our, our not only our stories and our myths, but our popular media. Mm-hmm. Uh, like think of all the like things that are popular right now. Almost all of them have a bow and arrow in them. What do you mean? Well, Game of Thrones, full okay. of bows and arrows, and even spear throws, uh-huh. ridiculous spear throws. <laughs> yeah, lots <laughs> of them. have no basis on physics. Um, but then uh, you look at, uh, say, the, the Marvel movies. You have an archer in uh, in there as well. Oh, I forgot about that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what, Hawkeye? Uh, the DC world, they have the what, Green Arrow, uh, and that's been going on for like, multiple uh, seasons. Green Arrow? Wait, is it not Green Lantern? No, no, there's Green Arrow. Oh, there's See. both of them. Yeah. Good. They got two green people. They do. And, but Green Arrow has is actually archery-based, and they're like supporting characters that also have bow and arrows. So. And, and even just like I've, you know, you, you, you like you bring a child to a Renaissance festival. They do mm-hmm. the thing where they're shooting the bow and arrows. Like, and the, the child wants to try it out. Like they 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 see it and they want to do it. Like we have a connection 
uh, as, as if there isn't some sort of an innate connection that we have with these technologies. Man, if Marvel thinks it's a superpower to be able to shoot a bow and arrow good, imagine what they would have thought of like an army of archers. <laughs> <laughs> um, these, are, these are all superheroes. I wonder if there are any superheroes that use autolotls. Or indeed, is there a scene in a film uh, that, that actually depicts autolotl use? Perhaps I'm forgetting one. Um, I know there have been, you know, there there have been some notable films that deal with, uh, you know, uh, pre-contact Mesoamerica or uh, or you know, or, or more ancient peoples. But mm. I am not recalling a good autolotl scene offhand. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't say this to glorify violence, but as far as a, like a mechanical invention, it is a beautiful weapon. Yeah. So if you if you know of any examples of this, please uh, write in and let us know. I would love to know what movie I need to check out to see, uh, hopefully, an accurate depiction of how an autolotl is used. Or hey, have you used an autolotl? Whether you know whether it's uh, like a part of your cultural heritage or whether you just experimented with one, we'd like to hear about that. Oh, I know I know some listeners out there have used an autolotl. In fact, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to guess. I'm going to guess that we hear from I'm going to say five people. <laughs> who have uh, used an autolotl. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just going to – I may be off on that, but I'm going to just guess five people and we'll, we'll find out in a future Lister Mail episode if I'm accurate on that. Here's something I'm curious about from people who have used an autolotl. What was the experience of accuracy like, especially when compared to your intuitions before using it for the first time? Was it easier than you would have expected to hit your your target with it, or was it harder than you would have expected? Right. And then can you compare it to other ranged weapon uses? Like, for Mm -hmm. instance, had you used a bow before, and how would you compare it to the experience of using a bow or the experience of throwing a spear, um, you know, outright without any kind of mechanical aid? So there you have it, the autolotl. Uh, yeah, this is a really fun one to look into, in part because I, I feel like the autolotl is often kind of, um, you know, glossed over yeah. uh, in our in our histories and, and uh, you know, even in our museums sometimes. And in part of that, too, is, you know, that we have not historically had that great of an understanding of what these were and how they were utilized. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, hey, yeah, it's always fun to discuss. We can't help but discuss military technologies along the way. Uh, and or hunting technologies, you know, weapons. So I, I, it does make me wonder, what other weapons would you like to hear us cover on invention? Or how about armor? Uh, would you like to hear us do an entire episode on body armor and how that has, uh, where that originates and how that has uh, uh, been implemented in different cultures around the world and, and how it changes uh, humanity? Robert and I were talking about armor before we came in today. I I think that's a good candidate coming up. All right. Well, if you want to check out more episodes of Invention, uh, you can head on over to inventionpod.com. That's the... That's the the main website for the show. You can also find us wherever you get your podcast. And hey, wherever you do get your podcast, we just ask a few things of you. Um, if you would make sure you subscribe to the show, that obviously helps us out. Uh, also, rate and review us if you have the power to do so. If you can throw us, uh, you know, the maximum number of stars and a few nice words, that helps things out immensely. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Tari Harrison. If you'd like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at inventionpod.com. Invention is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 